This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Why don't you introduce the show? All right. Welcome, everyone, to Ages and Icons. I'm Mike Crisologo. And I'm Mike's trusty sidekick, Gina Bucci. And Gina, we have our second ever in-studio podcast guest today. That's right. Ted Barris is here. Ted Barris is here. Uh, Ooh, author, journalist, <laughs> a little, little mini ovation. Uh, author, journalist, uh, Canadian military historian. Um, you've written 17 best-selling nonfiction books. Wow. Uh, Ted, it's a thrill to have you here today. Likewise. Nice to catch up with you and to, to be your second podcast victim. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's always weird. Usually we do the interviews out of studio and then we just record the intros and extras in here. So it's it's always kind of fun to have somebody actually in here with us to sort of see how the hot dog gets made, so to speak. Thank you for the invitation. <laughs> um, <laughs> Ew, hot dogs. Yeah, I know. that. Put it that way. You never would have yeah. come if I had put that in the email. <laughs> um, it's, it's funny. I was thinking about this the other day and just as full disclosure... Ten years ago this month, I showed up for my first day of journalism school. Ten years ago to the month, and Ted Barris was the, the man at the other end of the classroom, well, at the front of the classroom, teaching your the class. professor, yes. your teacher. Yeah, Ted Barris. Uh, so full disclosure to the audience, I, I've known Ted for a while. Uh-oh. <laughs> And full disclosure, I read his stuff all the time. <laughs> Ted, uh, just to keep him honest. To this day, I guess it, I'm the only stranger in the room. <laughs> you yeah, are, yeah. But it's good to have you along. Thanks for coming, Gina. Someone, <laughs> someone needs to be objective. It's funny, Ted. Um, Ted was uh, my journalism mentor, but when when we were in school, he we would lose marks for using to be verbs, in mm. and ten uh, percent, and and for for. Uh, Can I have an example? Well, uh, well, yeah, um, you know. Give instead us. of uh, instead of I am an author, I write books. Ah, mm-hmm. that's the difference. Is that I was trying to encourage all of my journalists and my my students, uh, and Mike certainly took to it right away, not to use passive verbs mm-hmm. because when we're writing and speaking, is is dead. It's boring. It doesn't have any life. Write is an active verb. You can see it. You can visualize it. And if you get that as a writer, whether you're writing journalism or broadcasting even, the difference is that your audience or your reader can see it. Yeah. So that's a small example of, and that's nothing you know, revolutionary, but it's a small trick of the trade. And when young men and women come into journalism programs, such as Mike did 10 years ago, I'm, I, can't, I can't believe it's that I long. <laughs> but when you do that, um, what, what's important for us to do is to make sure that the little things that we've learned as uh, seasoned writers are easily passed along to the people who think they're God's gift to writing, which, yeah. you know, no, I'm I sure know. you felt as I did when <laughs> I was Everybody at Everybody does. Yeah. It picks up a pen or, or sits at the keyboard. And, and to this day, when I'm even writing emails, I'm catching myself with two B-verbs. Good for but, you. But the Good reason I me. mentioned it is because I picked up Damn Busters, Ted's latest <laughs> book, which we're going to talk about. And I started, as I'm reading through, I'm looking for those to B-verbs. And I know eventually I found a couple. I said, <laughs> damn it, Ted, there we go. Was... Well, I just use it for variety. <laughs> right. I mean, he wrote what, like? Like five, six hundred pages, five hundred pages here. You're going to have a to be verb in there somewhere. I guess. But to be perfectly fair with you um, and, and honest, um, when I'm writing history, 
I don't want to write material that's lame, that sort of sits there. Yeah. So you're right. Uh, and I use my own rules to gauge the quality of what I'm delivering to a history, history reader. Because if I make reference to military things in bland, passive voice words, the per- person reading isn't going to be able to visualize it. So if I can make sure that the flying, that the the bombing, that the, the creation of this inc- incredible story and the people in it has life through the verbs that I use and the language I choose, it's going to make it easier for a reader to say, boy, I get that. I see it. I can understand what this was about, even though it happened 75 years ago. Yeah. Now, um, I obviously, we were going to talk about your latest book, Dam Busters, but I wanted to just start at the beginning because I've often said you've written so many books about Canadian military history, and, and I know I've told you this many times, but a lot of these stories I never learned about in school. I learned about them because you wrote about them, uh, which I guess is another discussion for how we teach our own history in school. But um, I read, and I this could be wrong, so you correct me if it's wrong, that, that you wrote your first paper in elementary school on the War of 1812. <laughs> so you were writing about military history as a child. Kind of. And, and uh, it was actually a speech. When I went to school in the 1950s, we had what was called public speaking competitions. And some of us who wrote material that could be delivered on a stage had to then step up and do it. Mm-hmm. So for some reason, I chose a topic I think it was the causes of the War of 1812, if I remember, <laughs> and it was probably grade seven or something. And I remember writing the speech because I dug into the history and pulled together all of the details of them when the Monitor met the Miramac in the Civil War or, you know, the lead up to uh, War of 18, whatever it was. Um, you dig up the stuff. And then as a speech presenter, after you've written it, you then take out, you know, those little um, cardboard uh, baking uh, recipe cards oh, that yeah. you can buy yeah. and you put them in a little collector for all the people who do the baking that yeah. way. I wrote out the entire speech on the little baking cards <laughs> so that I would memorize it but have it in my in front of me down at my waist in case I needed to refer yeah. to it. So I wrote out the whole speech and then stood up there and sweat bullets as I presented the causes of the War of 1812 to my classmates and the rest of the assembly. But yeah, for some reason, I chose that topic. I don't know why. Um, and suddenly I, I realized that military stuff was visual, was exciting. Yeah. Uh, was, and if you could catch the stories of the people in the middle of this stu- stuff, so much the better. Did you win the speech competition? I don't think I did, no. no, no, no. <laughs> I think probably somebody who who picked a topic that the teacher liked more than the War of 1812 yeah. won. But it was a great experience. And if the one thing, that one redeeming thing about that, now that I'm thinking about it, is the man who was my teacher then, a man named Mike Malott, in those days you had a teacher for all of your classes. So he taught us phys ed and he taught mm-hmm. us math and he taught us science and history. He kindled my love of history. He realized that I had a penchant for it and a fascination of it. And he instilled that in me. And from that day on, I've never forgotten that it was my grade five or grade seven, because I had him twice, teacher Mike Malott, who gave me this love of history. So it probably goes hand in hand with the topic. Wow. So that, that, in that, passion for history and, and Canadian history goes all the way back to your childhood. Absolutely. And Mike was, was my, I remember 
we were – do you remember when you study in public school the great explorers like, oh, yeah. you know, uh, Jean Cabot and, yeah, and, and Cartier and all, Cartier that, yeah. and all those guys? Um, uh, we had a history class scheduled for the afternoon and Mike was coming in. And in, in those days you went for lunch for maybe 90 minutes from noon till about 1.30. So we came back into the classroom and we're sitting there. Where's the teacher? Where's Mike? You know, and by now the, the 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 chaos is beginning to break out in the room, and no one's paying any attention. All of a sudden, the door bangs open, and Mike comes in with a three-corner cap, boots up to his knees, a cape, and a ruler as a sword, and he leaps up onto the desk, and he becomes Vasco da Gama, <laughs> the great explorer of the nice. of this the Pacific. Yeah. Wow! And we were kind of like, holy smoke, who is this guy? But <laughs> In, a, in an instant, he grabbed our attention. He knew that by being melodramatic this way and provocative, we would pay attention. And in that, similarly in that moment, I recognized that I love this stuff. I just, you know, drooled to have yet another visit from Vasco da Gama, you know. Oh, wow. So he really was the, and my dad was part of that too, although yeah. he didn't jump up onto desks with swords and boots. <laughs> but Mike uh, instilled that passion uh, from that day, and unfortunately he's gone now. But I did have an opportunity in one of my books, uh, Days of Victory, back in 2005, to dedicate the book to him and to thank you for, wow. for the gift of his uh, passion for history. So when people come to your, um, your tours, your book tours, do you show up in costume and, and hop up on stage and do any of that? Uh, no, but <laughs> the imagination is that, uh, you, as you can gather from just this conversation so far, Gina and, and Mike, you know from my past, that I, I like to throw my arms around. Yeah. I, I like to speak with my face. Um, so those are the. Where else would you speak from, Ted? Well, I'm in the sense that in the th in the sense that I like to light up as right. a as a body and a facial expression mm -hmm. as much as I do the language I choose. And so when I do a presentation, I don't use a lectern. You may remember yes. that in all the years I taught you, or the couple of years I did, yep. that I never used a, a podium or a lectern. I opened the door, threw the books on the table, and wandered around the room. Yep. It's the same when I do a presentation, whether it's uh, half a dozen people or, as was the case last year at the Canadian Warplane Heritage Museum on Remembrance Day, there were 3,500 people in the hangar. Wow. And fortunately, they had aisles among all the chairs, and I was way the heck back in the audience, <laughs> fortunately able to click the images on the big screen, but I was right next to the people and mingling with them as I told the story. In their faces would be the appropriate expression. Yeah. And to me, that makes the history real. We mentioned it before, you've written the 17 nonfiction bestsellers, many of them on Canadian history mm -hmm. and military history. And I was looking just earlier at some of the, the, the variety. Uh, I mean, you wrote The, the Great Escape, which was uh, which was a huge one for you, and and the really uh, we think of it as the Steve McQueen movie, but, right? But it's a very largely a Canadian story, very which, much which so. you revealed. And um, I was looking at like Fire Canoe about how steamboats helped aid in Canada's expansion. Uh, you wrote about the Canadian effort in Korea, which I was reading is largely it, it gets overlooked, forgotten. Yeah, forgotten. Um, and the one that I think. I don't know if I was in school with you or, or just graduated when you released Breaking the Silence, because I remember seeing that cover, which was stories uh, from veterans from the First World War to Afghanistan, just stories that they hadn't told or, or maybe hadn't been as public before. Um, so I find that fascinating that you find these stories. And I'm curious, 
sort of what your process is for finding saying, hey, this is what I want to write my next book about? Very often it's anniversaries. Hmm. Uh, Breaking the Silence was an exception. Um, I wrote the um, Great Escape book um, on the 70th, coming into the 70th anniversary of the Great Escape in 1944. Um, I wrote, so it was, came out in 2013, 2014. Um, I wrote a book about... Uh, the Canadians landing on Juneau Beach, a book called Juno mm-hmm. uh, in in Normandy in nineteen uh, also in nineteen forty four. I wrote that in two thousand and four. So the anniversary aspect is very much right. a, a part of the the decision making process. But um, to a certain extent, it's uh, it's also what my library is beginning to yield. I've had the opportunity. I've had the good fortune, been blessed. Uh, to have had an opportunity to meet probably between 5,500 and 6,500 veterans Mm -hmm. over the years that I've done all this, which means that between 5,500 and 6,500 people opened themselves up to me to reveal some of the toughest experiences of their lives, probably the most revealing of which were some of the men I met in the preparation of Breaking the Silence who had come back from Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. The reason for that was that the veterans from Afghanistan had not had 50 or 60 or 70 years to get it into their system, to work out the words with which they would describe it, and to deal with the feelings, clearly very traumatic. That's why we call it post-traumatic stress. Um, And to have been able, the the older guys, and men and women, had had a chance to push it into their past. And when someone asked them about it, a script that they almost rehearsed came out. Well, here's the way I remember it. Here's the way I felt. Here's what happened, et cetera. The men coming back from Afghanistan, whom I interviewed, four of them, who witnessed the famous um, uh, friendly fire incident in 2002, um, they didn't have the time to process it. They hadn't had the time to compartmentalize it in their brains and their memories. It was raw. They saw four of their Canadian mates killed in this accidental dropping of the, the Americans dropping the bomb on this training right. operation at Tarnak Farms in Afghanistan. And so I remember sitting uh, with one of the guys who was an infanteer, which is a, a modern word for a rifleman. Um, he was in a, a, the setting where the bomb came down, uh, just to the right, maybe 50 meters from where the bomb landed, um, a guy named DeCare, Brian DeCare. He came to my house. I shooed everybody out of the house that night. This is back in, oh, maybe just before the book came out, probably in uh, uh, 2009 or mm-hmm. 2007, something like that, and invited him to the house. He came to the doorway, and he was like a deer in the headlights. I saw his, his eyes were f- full of fear. And I said, come on in, Brian. I said, I know you're panicking about this. Relax. I'm not looking for dirt. I'm here to hear what you saw, remember what you can, and, and we'll talk about it in a conversation. He sat down at the kitchen table, and he pu- started pulling out pages. And he laid them out, splayed them out on the table. And I looked at them and I realized he had written answers for all the questions he expected I would get hit with, hit him with through the conversation. So he had pat answers for the expected questions. And inevitably, I asked the pat questions. Where did it happen? When did it happen? Give us the situation, how you came to be there, all that stuff. My job as an interviewer on that night was to find a question for which there was not an answer among those pages. And I found it. 
took a while, but an hour into the interview, um, this is, again is where this American uh, laser-guided 500-pound bomb crashes into the middle of this Canadian training group. There's about 50 men on this training uh, elevation in, in, in Afghanistan. And I said to Brian at one point, what did it sound like when the bomb hit? And he looked off in space, and he kind of smiled because he knew that the answer wasn't on the page. <laughs> and he said, you're going to laugh. And I said, try me. He said, you know those Wiley Coyote cartoons where the coyote's running through the deep canyon and the anvil comes lofting off the top of the cliff and crashes, and he pounded his hands together, crashes into the coyote, and he expected me to laugh, and I didn't. He said, that's what it sounded like. And in that second, he opened the door to giving me the real story, the really painful stuff, the tough stuff that he couldn't admit to anybody else. And because it was so recent, it was raw and rich and painful for him. And then I think he left that night knowing that I was going to respect the areas that he didn't want told, still tell the story as deep as it was in his uh, psyche, um, and yet be fair. Uh, and, And that's part of the process, is knowing what you're up against, preparing and then allowing the time for interviewer to open door into the darkness. My God, and the pressure that that must put on yourself as the chronicler to know that this person just opened up about all this pain and I need to do it justice. And, Greater and, pressure and pain on, on his side. Yeah. Because uh, it hurt. He, ironically, that very morning, it was in, I think it was in, April of 2002, that April the 17th, I think, that very morning, the same platoon had practiced an evacuation just somewhere else in the desert. They trained getting on an evacuation helicopter, getting, you know, mimicking, taking wounded out and what would happen. And he took pictures. Brian did. And that very night, because this was a, this was a night exercise, this bomb comes down and the practice had to be uh, fulfilled for real. And that's when he lost it. That's when he cried. And I cried because yeah. it's very painful to watch a guy fall apart over the loss of his friends. Wow. So this is obviously part of the process that you go through because you meet, like you said, with all of these veterans and, and discuss their stories. Can you give us an idea sort of when you decide that you're going to write about this topic like say dam busters, mm-hmm. uh, what the process is for you from from idea to putting it on the page? You got to try to find out if the resources are there, if the, if the uh, raw material is there. Right. Um, I had the good fortune to stumble across Canada's last surviving dam buster, a man who participated in the raid. For those who aren't familiar with this story, in, in a couple of mm-hmm. sentences, yeah. here's what happened. In 1943, a weirdo scientist in Britain, a guy named Barnes Wallace, invented a bomb that could bounce over the reservoir water where the, the Germans, the Nazis, had developed these huge dams on the Ruhr River inside in the heart of Germany. And, of course, these dams powered the Nazi industrial military complex, building the weapons that the Nazis were using against everybody in Europe. And the scientists figured that if we could bomb those dams, it would knock out all the water production, the hydroelectricity, and the iron production, the steel production that was developing these weapons. And so the job of a series of crewmen, 
19 crews was to fly in with a four-engine Lancaster bomber at treetop level. Look out your window now and look at a building that's about maybe 10 stories high. And when you see that building, know that a four-engine Lancaster, like the one that flies out of Hamilton, was flying that low with a 10,000-pound bomb in its belly from England to the Ruhr Valley and back to deliver this bouncing bomb to those dams. So now I find that Fred Sutherland was a front gunner on a Lancaster on one of those 19 Lancasters flying from England to Germany and back. So he had a front row seat, literally, to what had happened when they flew in to bomb the dams. His aircraft, uh, piloted by a man named Les Knight, who was Australian, there were two other Canadians on the, uh, on the plane with him, uh, with Fred. But I found out that Fred was alive and well and living in Rocky Mountain House, Alberta, which is about halfway between Red Deer and the mountains in central Alberta. I thought, I'm going to see whether this guy's got a story. <laughs> and I went out there and from Toronto, and he did. And I sat with him for three days. His wife was suffering horribly from cancer, and so he was distracted somewhat by coping with her medical needs. But he sat down with me, and I quizzed him from start of his career as an aviator until he came back. From the moment he fell in love with flying, one day when a guy named Punch Dickens, who was a bush pilot, flew into Peace River, Alberta, where he was living then. Punch Dickens is a famous, famous name in northern flying in Canada. This guy dropped into his town when he was a kid, teenager, and gave Fred a ride in his uh, float plane. And Fred fell in love with flying. Right through Fred's entire training process in the war, going off to become a gunner, arrives after a number of, of operations sufficient to put him in the 617 squadron on one of the planes, going to the Ruhr Valley to bomb the dams, and he survives and comes back. And the minute he comes home, he marries his sweetheart, Margaret Baker, and leaves all that behind. That's the story I got from Fred. And I realized... I got something here. So what I had to try to find out was where were all the other Canadians? There were 133 men on those 19 Lancasters flying to Germany to do the operation. A quarter of them were Canadians. A quarter of them. Yeah. And nobody knows this. You know, you mentioned that in the the book that you you I'm reading it and Ted's listing all of these other books that have been written about dam busters and and movies and and yeah. TV shows and stuff and and as I'm reading this I'm going I know he's telling us this for a reason. I'm not sure why he's telling us that there's all this other stuff out there about the book he just wrote until you got to the part where you said you can't find the Canadians in any of them. And it's the, the story's lousy with them. Yeah. They're everywhere. <laughs> uh, what's, what's, and, but that's not just the Canadian part of this story. The fact that there were Canadian pilots in this raid, Canadian navigators, flight engineers, bomb aimers, gunners, uh, ground crew, Canadians. Not just that, but I my, part of the thesis of this book is that none of this extraordinary operation that took place on the 16th and 17th of May 1943, when the Allies had no victories to their credit, wow. turned the tide to a certain extent in the war because this was a victory to breach those dams. They breached the Mona and the Eder dams blew holes in them, water flooded for 100 miles down the river, killing a lot of people, but destroying those munitions plants and airfields and all the Nazi buildup for 100 miles. And um, that nobody realizes that this is a Canadian operation. In addition to the, the men on the operation, one of my theses in the book is the reason that most of these guys were trained here in Canada, even the Brits, Hmm. made this operation possible. 
you'll know that the dedication in the book is to the men and women of the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan. All of the training of air crew, bomber crews, fighter crews, ground crews, transport crews, coastal command, everybody was trained in Canada. We trained a quarter of a million men here in the Second World War for air military air operations. And half of the men on the Dam Busters Raid, half of the 133 were trained in Canada, which means if they hadn't had that training, that basic high standard of training here, none of this could have happened. Wow. So it's a Canadian story from its roots to its treetops. It's incredible, too, because you note in the book that a lot of these, I mean, well, everyone on this mission knew that there's a good chance they're not coming back. Fred said it. Yeah. Fred walked into Fred Sutherland. He, the, the day he arrived with 30 other crews, because there were 30 initially, I think. Anyway, he walked into the first briefing, and he saw the medals on the chests of some of these guys, realizing the power in that room and the talent and the experience. And yet he thought when he realized what they were up to, they, although he didn't know what they were going to bomb, mm-hmm. they went through the entire seven-and-a-half-week training period without knowing what their target was until the day of the operation, May the 16th, 1943. Anyway, he realized the peril that he was facing and that he might not come back from this. Right. It seems like it's sort of a, like, it's an honor to be chosen for such a (laughs) mission, but at the same time, we're probably, you're not coming back. But they they had a choice. Yeah. They they were, it was kind of intriguing because the way Fred described it, um, and I'm, we're dwelling on Fred because he's the one yeah. man left alive. And so many of the other stories I gathered are similar. But Fred remembered that he had just finished a tour, which means he had done 30 flights in his bomber with his bomber crew over Germany and back at night, 30 of them, or just about. And he was told, he was pulled aside by his commanding officer at the squadron that he was serving at, and he said, Okay, you guys have just about completed a tour. We'll give you the rest of that complete tour, which means that he'd get a bit of a break. And we'll ask you to do a new operation on a new tour. But if you volunteer for this, the last tour is done. You've got that to your credit. You go to this one. I have no idea what it is, but you're immediately into a next um, uh, mission. And that might give you also a shortened tour to get out of the war ultimately a little faster. So the guys and Fred's crew got together, and they didn't know what the heck was going on, but they thought, yeah. what the heck? I mean, the odds of surviving the war were difficult as, as it was. How much more dangerous could this be? So they took the bait. They went, and they had the qualifications. The crew arrives, and then Fred realizes what they're into. They did seven and a half weeks of low-level flying over England, training everywhere. Guy Gibson, who was the squadron commander, he said, I'm going to have you guys flying so well, low-level, night and day, over water, over mountains, over woods, so that if I want you to go to a tree in England, you'll be able to do it. Hmm. Wow. What was, um, when you were were writing this and learning all these stories, what was something that sort of maybe caught you off guard or, or sort of stood out to you as one of the more amazing facets of this already amazing story? Um, Probably uh, the extraordinary skill with which these men came to the operation. Um, I mentioned the low flying. Um, A guy named Ken Brown uh, was another Canadian from Moose Jaw. And he had also a, a tour behind him when he was recruited by Guy Gibson to, to, to train. And during the training, they were told, fly as low as you can over everything. And so Brown, looking 
to meet the challenge head on, was out one day. Oh, yeah, they, they, that's the other thing. They, they, um, Gibson had made sure that there were signal corpsmen, that is, uh, uh, communications people, watching the flight paths of all of the bombers as they went out to practice. Well, the reason is to avoid radar. Is that why? To fly really low? Yes. The idea was to avoid radar, literally to fly under the radar. Yeah. But in addition to that, to be able to um, deliver the bomb, not from a high altitude, which is what most of the bombers had done all through the war, but at a flat trajectory, low to the water, they had to come in at at the dam exactly 60 feet off the water at exactly 230, 235 miles an hour in the right attitude coming at the at the dam and the bomb which weighed 10,000 pounds and was like a, a drum a cylinder drum in the belly of the aircraft was spinning while it was in the aircraft's belly so that when the bomb fell on the water the action of the bomb spinning like a drum spinning on water would skip the bomb across the water, over the torpedo nets, rest up against the back of the dam, come to a stop on the backside of the dam, sink in the water, and explode like a depth charge. Wow. That was, and then, with all of that intricacy, (laughs) the altitude, the speed, the attitude, the timing, everything, the Germans were shooting at them on the way in. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? So they still got picked up. They, abs- yeah. yeah. In spite of their getting in there, yeah. the, the gunners who were on the dams, and there were some, responded. Yeah. And several of the crews were lost as a result. Jeez. But you're right, uh, Gina. It, it was to stay low, to avoid um, detection from the German uh, sophisticated radar that was there, and the gun batteries that were scattered everywhere, especially along the coast. When they went in over the coast of, of Holland, there were batteries uh, uh, high explosive um, uh, weapons or, or um, guns that were anti-aircraft. Mm-hmm. But they were all looking up, right. way up. In fact, at one point, I think it was on Ken Brown's crew, the man I just mentioned, they're flying so low they looked up and they could see the conning trails of the, the German night fighters a thousand feet over their heads looking up oh, for wow. incoming bombers. <laughs> and they were flying so low they hadn't detected them and they were right down at ground level. Wow. So Brown... During one of these training sessions, he goes out, told to fly as low as he can, and his crew's with him, and they're beetling around, you know, 200 miles an hour plus, going as low as they can. Suddenly, they come down over a, a hillside, and dead ahead of them is a, an aerodrome, a hangar under construction. So there are guys on the roof, there are guys on the walls, up on ladders, and he figures, okay, we're going to stay low. We're just going to hop over this baby, this this building, and see what happens. And he went straight at it at ground level. He's like maybe 50 feet off the ground at 230 <laughs> miles an hour. And suddenly the people on the on the aerodrome see this plane coming straight at them and they start jumping off the building. Yeah. So he immediately rises up to 200 feet to go over top of it to make sure that they realized that they weren't there was no threat. They weren't going to be yeah. bombed or strafed. Well, the guys who were detecting where the bombers were going told Guy Gibson that Brown had gone up to 200 feet and he was on the carpet for it. What do you mean flying at that level? Well, he said it was a pretty good uh, uh, flight training flight, uh, Brown tells Gibson. At 200 feet, I don't think so. Go back and do it again, meaning go lower. Next day, he goes out. He comes back at the same aerodrome, comes at it the same attitude, only he just hops up enough to clear the top of the building. And again, bodies are flying everywhere. And then he's back up on the carpet the same day with, with, with uh, Gibson. And he said, 
Brown, I told you low, but not that low. <laughs> wow. They tested themselves. Yeah. They were young. These guys were 19, 23. Some of the pilots might have been 25 or 26. Wow. Think about yourself at that age. You were invincible. Yeah. There was nothing could touch you. And in a wartime situation, you needed that to survive, yeah. that sense of inv invincibility. They're eager. They want to prove themselves. And don't, don't forget, this was at the end of the Depression. When yeah. most of those men had not had jobs, they'd never had three square meals a day, they hadn't had respect, their families were wondering how the hell they're going to account for them and, and keep them alive, and now these young guys find respect, uh, a focus, a sense of duty, and a sense of service that they hadn't had, and a sense of purpose. And in this case, the dam busters, so much more so, realizing when they finally got word on the 16th of May what they were attacking, why it was so significant, that they could knock out these dams, eliminate the hydroelectrical uh, support that the Nazis had in this munitions valley, and maybe cripple it long enough to set them back. And then the thing that they hadn't anticipated was the groundswell of response. In Britain, the dam buster raid on the 16th and 17th of May is like the 4th of July. For them, it's like um, uh, self-determination day. This was the day the war turned. Wow. That's why they celebrated in England that way. Well, we need like a Christopher Nolan to, to make a movie about this. <laughs> in fact, there is another movie like, uh, being made. Yeah, really. Yeah. Um, the movie was made originally in 1955. Of course, there's no mention of Canadians. Yeah. Not once. You might see the odd Canada flash on the shoulders of some of the actors because they recognize that much. But none of the principals is Canadian in the movie. And the movie was done very documentary style. It was, it was very uh, real. They, they shot it in black and white. Michael Anderson just died, was the director. Um, shot it in black and white so they could use the actual footage of the actual drops that they used in trial, incorporate those into the movie. Oh. Okay? But um, the movie is allegedly partway shot by Peter Jackson. Really? The same guy who's done all the... I haven't heard about this. Uh, he's done all the... the, yeah, the Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings films. Yeah, the he got partway through it. In fact, there are, apparently there are Lancaster um, um, mock-ups mock in a hangar somewhere getting ready to shoot the rest of this film to do it with the digital animation. But you, but you don't think there's any Canadian... Uh, emphasis on, on the character. I don't know. I haven't seen the script. Maybe known. maybe before he finishes it, he'll see this book and he'll realize that there's an <laughs> oh. important element missing. <laughs> yeah, it's like, well, I was talking about Nolan because Nolan brought Dunkirk to the yeah. world's attention. Yeah. That's a huge yeah. deal in, in England. I, I didn't hear much about it, so it was yeah. wonderful to find to hear about that story as well. But don't forget, and, and Mike, you know this as, as well as anybody, Hollywood and anybody who's making feature films, they're not making it to tell history. Yeah. They're making to put bum and, bums in seats. Yeah, it's all about entertainment. So the fact that Dunkirk wasn't particularly uh, adhering to the history or that the Dam Busters didn't in 1955 or the Great Escape in 1960-whatever yeah. didn't adhere to the fact that there were Canadians in the story, that's not their problem. Yeah. No. Their job is to get the hunks of Hollywood or the best stars. Michael uh, Redgrave played Barnes Wallace in the Dam Busters movie and Richard Todd, very respected actors in their day. Richard Todd had actually been a veteran. He, he'd gone in with with um, um, the commandos into Normandy in 1944. Um, but it's not, it's not a movie maker's job to get it right. Right. Unless, unless getting it right is 
making it successful and and getting a lot right. of box office. Depends on the movie maker. Some are very very much interested in that. Yeah. But I have a question about the drop. So when they're flying at 60, oh, 60 feet. feet, um, <laughs> how nervous are they that they're actually going to get bombed when they th- that they're going to feel the explosion themselves? Good point. In other words, when the bomb that they're carrying drops, right. the danger of being caught in the explosion mm-hmm. because the bomb was not set to go off until it sank in water. There's a there's a there's a phenomenon in in uh, marine warfare. Uh, of a depth charge. When we were fighting, when the Allies were fighting the wolf packs, the, the U-boats during the Second World War, they had explosives on board the corvettes and the destroyers that were attacking the U-boats. And the way they worked was they would launch these big barrels of explosive off the ship deck onto the location in the water where the submarine was, but the bomb was allowed to sink and then respond, to, they would set the depth of the bomb to explode at a certain amount of water pressure. Oh, uh-huh. That's a depth charge. And the nature of the bomb that they dropped against the wall of the dam was the same. In other words, it didn't explode until it had the pressure of the water against it next to the dam. It could be a matter of 10 or 15 seconds. It might be longer. And the, the, the shame of it was some of the bombs didn't bounce properly. Mm-hmm. And one or two of them ricocheted off the top of the, of the dam. And in the explosion, yes, some of the crews were caught in that. At least one crew was downed by the explosion that, that crippled the plane. Yeah. Um, so that's a very critical uh, aspect, which is why they trained so long. But the, the idea was that the bomb was going to sink in the water, and the, and the pressure and the volume of the water would help punch a hole through the dam. It wasn't like an explosion in the air, which doesn't have the same impact. There's concussion, yeah. but the concussion in the water at the depth they had hoped it would explode would have such an impact at the base of the dam, it would punch a hole through it. Yeah. And they breached two dams just using that effect. It worked. And Barnes Wallace, the guy who invented this, the, the, the British engineer, he was responsible for designing uh, massive airships like the R-100, which traveled here in 1930, and the uh, Wellington bomber with its geodesic design inside. He was a master at designing. He designed this bomb to do that. He was absolutely fearful to the very last second as they're waiting from word, forward from the bombers attacking the Ruhr River, the dams, whether the, the concept would work. And he kept getting reports back, this bomb has failed, this bomb has failed. This bomb has failed, crew gone, losses. And it wasn't until the fifth of the upkeep bombs, which what that's what the code word was for that bomb, sank, that it was the combined explosions of the two or three depth charges that got to that depth, the fifth one made the difference, and the bomb blew, or the dam blew. So when you are researching these sorts of stories in military history and you're talking to the veterans, and you've been doing it for, for how many years now? Well, since the 60s. That's since like the, 60 years ago. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we always talk, especially around Remembrance Day and such, we, we discuss how um, there are fewer and fewer veterans that remain from, from the, the Second World War and, and such. And so as a researcher, do you find that as you go forward with the stories that you write sort of recognizing that there might be fewer and fewer first-hand accounts to have to to be able to tell this story the danger of losing the resource yeah. pool you're right it is it is uh, going away I mean every time we come to Remembrance Day every year 
there are fewer and fewer women and men there who were there, who were actually veterans. And so the reservoir of available firsthand accounts is diminishing constantly. But one of the things that's a saving grace, both of the First World War and the Second World War, for some reason, the men and women in those conflicts wrote things down. I did the entire book on the Battle of Vimy Ridge, which took place 100 years ago last year, mm -hmm. without interviewing one witness. Oh, wow. I had to go to their diaries, their letters home, their Ill illegal journals, because some of them kept journals. They weren't supposed to do that in case they were captured, and this information would then fall into enemy hands. Of all of this stuff was done illegally. And I found resources all over the country where these small cadres of, of um, piles of, of, of from from families who had saved them, not knowing what their worth or value was. I was given access to the Vimy Diaries in many of, the, many of these instances. I found a few instances where tapes had been made, reel-to-reel -reel tapes, the old, old recording wow. devices, uh, back in the 1960s of men who were at Vimy, um, you know, 50 years before. And those reel-to-reel -reel tapes were firsthand accounts, and that helped provide some data. But I never spoke to a Vimy veteran who actually was there. The entire book, and there were probably 500 different sources in that book, came from my digging through diaries and archives and libraries and some of these dusty old tapes that everybody would forgotten about. I know we have to wrap up in a couple of minutes, but I want to ask you, because you do put so much uh, time and, and legwork and research into your books, why in your mind it's important that these stories are told, uh, especially for Canadians? Very much for the reason that we've been discussing. Canadians are not considered warriors. Since the time I went to school in the 50s and 60s when none of this was discussed, only our peacekeeping operations at best were discussed, we've never been described as a warring nation when nothing could be further from the truth. We have been part of the Boer War operations in South Africa, the uh, First World War, the Second World War, the Korean War, uh, the NATO operations, Afghanistan, Iraq, on and on and on and on. We have a war warrior tradition. I'm not suggesting that that's good. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pacifist. I, I've never had my hands on a gun. I'm no interest in them, uh, nor in violence. But to, to find the stories of these men and women who were ordinary and went through extraordinary things, to me, is so powerful, so attractive, and nobody's bothered. Well, not nobody, but a lot of people ignore that, thinking, yeah, that's old war stuff. Why would we be interested in celebrating or acknowledging that? Well, because we played a role in restoring peace to Europe twice. Right. Because we played a role in trying to restore peace in the Korean Peninsula and get women who never had a chance to go to school in Afghanistan that chance. All of those reasons, for whatever the politics, put men and women from Canada in extraordinarily sensitive and difficult positions. Why not find out what that was like? That's part of it. Um, my dad is part of the story. I'm working on a new book about his experience. He was a medic in the American Army. So the next book I'm working on will explore what medical personnel experienced. They were the people who didn't run away from danger. They ran toward it. Yeah. So the human experience in warfare is something that will probably be analyzed long after I'm gone. But if I can begin to deal with it in a very tangible, while the veterans are with us still, and even if they're not, way, uh, maybe I'm contributing to our better understanding of what that's like, why it's wrong, 
to wage war, why it's sometimes necessary, and how young men and women, they're the people who bear the brunt of this experience, how they fare, what they're like, how it changes them. I, you talked about World War II and being a pacifist. I'm also a pacifist. World War II, though, for me, I love reading about it. I love watching films about it. Because it was the uh, most documented. Series. It's true. It's very documented. But also, there's a very clear heroes yeah. and, ba- and villains yeah. and bad guys. Yeah. It's not like nowadays when we're getting all kinds of different sides of the story. Really, what like, everything's kind of, you can't help but make everything political because we're seeing all these different sides of the story. Of, of, you know, who are we to inflict our vision of democracy onto another nation or another part of the world or what have you? But with World War II, I mean, Nazism is very clear cut. It's yeah. wrong. <laughs> it's and, and Hitler's even though the nowadays, villain. yeah, and Hitler's the unfortunately, big villain, there's yeah. a bit of a resurgence yeah. around the world. I mean, that's pretty awful. But um, I still think majority of people around the world view it as just that is the evil, yeah. and so it's a very clear cut villain do you think that's that's why i think it's that's why i'm drawn to it that's why i those stories to me don't like i don't have that um queasiness of of learning about it more i think you've 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 uh, encapsulated it really well the enemy was pretty clear yeah the villains uh you know they they wore the black hats pretty clearly yeah. hitler and mussolini and hirohito they right. were out for political gain territorial gain death to anybody who got in their way and racist uh propaganda to eliminate the people they didn't feel were worthy of living or whatever the, right. the descriptions so it was a pretty clear picture then and and a lot of the young men and women who stepped up in the second world war recognized that a colleague of mine uh, Ellen Besner has just written a book called Double Threat. Ellen is a, was a colleague at Centennial College, still Also teaches. one of my professors there. Yeah. This is an, an extraordinary contribution to the Second World War canon of books. Um, she explores the lives of the Jewish Canadians who stepped up in the Second World War, knowing that not only was there the threat they might die in this war in whatever circumstance, but if they survived and were captured, they might become victims of the Holocaust. And it's a really extraordinary piece of uh, journalism and history writing and storytelling and Canadian content that we need to know. And it really does emphasize the peril that we faced in that period. So a lot of these guys and, and women stepped up recognizing that that was what they were facing. It's less um, uh, clear, less um, understandable who the enemy is today. Um, and With different even, wars. Yeah, and, and right. to a certain extent, it was the same case in, in, uh, in the First World War because that was such a, 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 a silly uh, exercise of slaughter um, mm-hmm. in the First World War over not as clear an enemy as was the case in the Second World yeah. War. Well, the book is uh, Dam Busters, Canadian Airmen and the Secret Raid Against Nazi Germany. And, um, I mean, I'm sure it'll be a hit. I know you're – it was the, <laughs> the Great Escape. You won the, the Libris Award, right, for That's Best right. Nonfiction. I was reading about this yesterday that you, you shared it with Chris Hadfield. Yeah. He, Some astronaut, <laughs> I understand. <laughs> <laughs> he went up in space once and he gets his award and Ted's doing all No, he wrote a very good book. Yeah, no. It, Chris is amazing. That's it's phenomenal that you got to share that with him. And, it was. Um, and, and you got the Diamond Jubilee Medal too, which yeah. I, I didn't know that. Yeah. You're so modest. All these <laughs> – well, it, th- those are wonderful things, but it, it's the joy of meeting people who love the writing, who yeah. get something out of it that's as great a reward as any person would want. 
So uh, Dam Busters is out uh, available, obviously, bookstores online. Um, do you have appearances or, or anything else that we should let people know about? If you're interested, I have about 40-some-odd appearances between beginning of September and uh, beginning of December. Go to my website, uh, tedbarris.com. Go to the events button. You'll find an event near you, I hope. And that means right across the country because I'm going to be speaking yeah. everywhere. Um, and, and I don't hide. If you're looking for information about it, you can track me down either by email or on my site or telephone numbers. I live in a little town called Uxbridge, Ontario, <laughs> and I don't hide. Uh, I love to meet people, especially have the, if they have additional stories that I've never heard of before. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, you, you can't hide because nope. you're, <laughs> you're soliciting stories, everyone. <laughs> yeah. Is there any uh, housekeeping before we go? Uh, yeah, please make sure that you follow us on uh, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you listen to podcasts. And, Ted, thank you so much for being here. A pleasure to meet you, yes. Gina, and to see you again, Mike. Thank you so much, Ted. Thank you, Gina. And thank you, everybody, for listening. And we'll see you next time on Ages and Icons. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.